Welcome to It Starts Within, a podcast from Platinum Performance, where we'll dive into the health challenges faced by veterinarians and horse owners alike. Join us for inspiring stories about the latest advancements in equine care, treatments, and comebacks. You'll hear interviews with elite competitors, innovative researchers, and the veterinarians that devote their lives to horses and the humans that love them. At Platinum Performance, we know the power of nutrition starts within. Hello, everyone. I'm Jesse Bengoa, and I am so happy to have you here today to join me and my guests as we dive into part two of our two-part series focusing on the cervical spine in the horse. Uh, In our first installment, we focused on the physical exam and diagnostics. Today, we're here to talk all things related to treatment and rehabilitation for horses encountering issues of the cervical spine. And with me today are two incredible equine veterinarians with multiple board certifications who are experts in sports medicine and rehabilitation and also in this specific topic. Uh, They're major names in the veterinary world, and they both lend their expertise to help educate their colleagues and also us as writers. So first up, she joined us in part one of this series, and she's back for part two. She is one of the driving forces behind the Equine Spine Initiative Group, and she's an absolute wealth of knowledge. She, ladies and gentlemen, is my dear friend, Dr. Mindy Story of Colorado State University. Hello, Dr. Story, and thank you for joining me again to talk treatment and rehab this time around. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. Um, And next up is another wildly impressive veterinarian, a board certified surgeon like Dr. Story. Um, And she's also board certified in equine sports medicine and rehabilitation. Uh, She comes to us from the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine and the New Bolton Center, where she runs the Ortved Orthopedic Regenerative Medicine Lab. And that kind of sort of gives away who we're talking to, which is Dr. Kyla Ortved. Hello, Dr. Ortved. It's great to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. You bet. So I have the dynamic duo with me today. um, And I'm really excited to dive into this topic because it really is one um, that has come to more prominence in the last couple of years. And thanks to the work of veterinarians like these two with us, um, it really is coming more and more to the forefront. So we talked in detail about diagnostics and the intricacies really surrounding the physical exam in part one of the series. But for those of you joining us today, um, we want to dive right in. So Dr. Story, first up, uh, give us a little revisit action, if you would, for the moment, um, on the specifics of what we're talking about when we're saying the cervical spine. Where in the horse's anatomy are we focusing? I know this might sound like a rudimentary question, but let's get grounded in the beginning. Um, tell us what we're dealing with. Absolutely. Uh, so essentially, we're talking from their ears to their withers. And um, I do think it's important to recognize there are so many structures that are lumped together when we talk about a horse's neck or their cervical spine. You know, they can have issues specifically at their pole. They can have issues in the joints. So there's seven vertebral bodies that that span that distance from their ears to their withers. Um, So perhaps it's a a joint problem in one of those um, seven vertebral bodies, maybe it's a disc, maybe it's a muscle. So I do think it's really important to think that there are so many structures 
within that area and it can be really complex to sort it out and, and think about which part we're going to discuss treatments for um, but but uh, that neck is critically important a lot of people think about the back or they think about the pelvis and the neck just is literally along for the ride some sometimes in people's minds but it uh, it's a it's a big force and it needs to be considered on its own and how to help these horses be happy and healthy to do their job. No, I think that's really well said. And I do feel like as riders, you know, from this perspective, that this is an area that is not really thought of, I, I guess, as, as frequently as it should be, not considered as frequently. But if you take a step back, you know, as a human and think what goes on between my ears and my withers um, <laughs> really has a pretty tremendous impact on how I feel every day and how I perform. Um, and it's such a big deal, you know, with us as humans, a lot of us do have, have issues with our necks, um, and horses are the same. So, you know, thanks to the, the spotlight that you're shining on this issue, it really is coming to the forefront and I'll switch over to Dr. Ortbed for a moment. Um, and Dr. Story, feel free to jump in as well, but Dr. Ortbed, what are some of the conditions that you're seeing that relates specifically to the cervical spine? So we can kind of ground ourselves in what it is that we're looking at here. Yeah, that's a, um, that's a great question, a long question. Um, and I'll just, uh, just before I jump into that, I'll reiterate what Mindy said in terms of the complexity of the anatomy. And it's, I mean, Jesse, you had a great point. If you think about your own neck and how complex it is, muscle, nerve, bone, joint, there's a lot and spinal cord. Um, there's a lot going on there. And I think that the neck has always been hugely important in the horse and Thankfully, in the last sort of decade, two decades, our ability to look at the neck a little bit more closely and diagnose horses um, with some advances in imaging and sort of recognition of what can happen in the neck is one part of it. And so we're we're able to more easily easily understand, diagnose, and treat horses with neck pain or neck disease. Um, but I would also, and, and Mindy, I would be interested to hear if you feel the same. I feel like owners and trainers are also much more in tune with, are becoming much more in tune with their horse's neck as well. Um, Cause some of the, some of the clinical signs we see are so subtle and an owner will come to you and say like, my horse just started doing this recently. And it's, it's a subtle sign, but it's important. And it is very often referred from the neck. Um, yeah. In terms of, gosh, in terms of diseases of the neck. <laughs> so um, uh, the way that I generally think about it or how I break it down um, are we have sort of our mechanical diseases of the neck and that sort of fits in the, um, the cervical vertebral stenotic myelopathy group where we have um, potentially um, issues with the spinal cord um, compression of the spinal cord. And that can be from various different things. Um, we see a lot of joint disease in the horse. And I would say most commonly the, the disease in the joint we're seeing are the ones at the sort of the top of the vertebral column. So those facet joints can cause some serious problems more rarely, but definitely we recognize it now are problems with the, the vertebral joints and the discs. So that's sort of like a broad, and there's lots more to go into that, but um, broadly that. And then 
are inflammatory or infectious causes. So there we often think of EPM would be the most common. Um, Lyme disease is something that is uncommon, but can be very problematic when it affects the spinal cord um, or the central nervous system. And then, um, and then sort of the other last category I think of is the neurodegenerative diseases. And that's more, can definitely affect the neck and, and the brain um, where we get degeneration of the, of the cord. I would say most of, at least probably what what I focus on and what I do and see is that first category of joint uh, joint bone um, sort of pathology and the the CVSM or the Wobblers. That you know, hearing you talk about that, I know we are comparing human to to horse and what I'm going to say, but it just seems like there's so many similarities. I mean, Mindy is sitting there not far from the Translational Medicine Institute, and it seems like this is yet another area where there's so much crossover, even though as two-leggers, we are very vertical and the four-leggers are exactly the opposite and horizontal, but um, it sure seems like a, a lot of similarity. But do you have anything to add to that, Dr. Story? Uh, I guess the only thing would just be remembering that in addition to the discs, the other soft tissues are critically important, you know, so, so the muscles in the region, um, the, the attachments um, play a role. Uh, So every structure has to be thought about and evaluated and decide if it's part of the pathology, which many times it's multifactorial. And then that's, um, it, it adds complexity to how we make a treatment plan, but I think some of, um, it also adds value to when we're thinking about treatments. Cause if we think about every structure, every tissue type, when we make our plan, um, we're more successful at the end. And I, you know, I'm sure we'll get to it, but when we're thinking about rehab, that's a big part of it. You know, if we just treat the joint, that's actually minimally effective in my opinion, but if we yeah. treat the joint and we make them stronger and we, uh, through strength, we protect the disc because then it's not going to have the likelihood to protrude more. You know, it just adds every layer, um, which makes the outcome that much more effective. You Absolutely. Bet. Makes perfect sense. So, you know, a question that's going through my head right now, um, are you seeing this in more so in higher level equine athletes, or is this not, uh, these conditions, do they not discriminate? You know, are you seeing this in horses regardless of their work level, their discipline or so on? I would certainly love Kyla's opinion on this too, but at at least here in Colorado, um, or in my work, a lot of my client base are dressage horses and it's easy to think, oh, this is a dressage horse problem, but I really don't think that Uh, My perspective is it's more about the rider and their feel of the horse and picking up on more Mm -hmm. subtle issues. Um, So they think about it maybe a little bit more, and I don't mean that in any sort of bad way, right? But they're just so in tune to literally every step. They think about how the horse is using themselves and and how they're behaving with every step. if my old horse is standing out in the pasture, it's easier to compensate for neck pain. As long as he literally can put his head down to grace, which actually in some neck horses they can't, but as long as he can, it's easier to overlook some of the subtleties. And so I don't think it's actually 
um, a performance level problem, nor do I think it's a discipline problem. I think it's just simply what we ask of them and how in tune we are to every step or, or not and when it arises in our minds as a problem. Absolutely. How about you, Dr. O'Brien? Yeah, I would totally, I would absolutely agree with Mindy. And I think there used to be that idea that, oh, it's definitely dressage horses because of the way their neck, their neck carriage. Um, and, and I think Mindy's statement is, is very on point. I would say we, I mean, I don't think it discriminates all horses can be effective, but I think we do see it quite commonly in sort of some high level athletes. If we're talking about, um, some of the, we see a lot of horses with arthritis of their, uh, of their sort of lower caudal cervical spine. And I would say that category of horses that are high performers and have that lower neck, um, pathology or osteoarthritis, it's because they are high elite athletes. And it's similar when we think, I mean, Jesse, you keep mentioning the translation, because I think it's very true. You think about human athletes and how, how much they use their bodies. And so they are going to be a little bit more prone to injury from use. If you compare the human that is the couch potato and lays on the couch all day, um, so yeah, I think there, I think there is probably more propensity to develop neck disease. If we're talking specifically about arthritis and discs and, and sort of that, that sort of wear and use pathology, I would say it's probably more common in the high performing horses. Um, it is a little hard to tease that out from breed and size of horse. Cause I, a lot of those horses are larger and sort of a, a, a specific breed tendency. Um, so there may be some sort of breed confirmation genetics wrapped up into all of this. Um, I don't think, I think there's so much that we still don't really know. Right. Absolutely. And I think those are things that, that groups like the equine spine initiative are starting yeah. to, to peel back the layers of the onion, if you will. And it, it makes me think too, you know, thinking of these high performance athletes, um, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, because they spend a lot of their time schooling and competing very collected. Um, and the neck is very engaged. And it's like, you wonder if, if those are, um, those are just easier to pick up on because, um, they yeah. are experiencing that a lot of the time. I don't know, but, you know, let's, we we've talked a little bit about the anatomy of what we're dealing with and the broad descriptions of, of the conditions that can go on. But what is some of the symptomology that you are seeing that kind of lends you to think, um, okay, you know, maybe we have something in the neck that's at play here. How about you, Dr. Story? Uh, everything. I really, everything, pretty much everything. <laughs> anything you can imagine. Yep. I could make an argument that we need to consider the neck in that. I mean, truly from subtle behaviors subtle inability to do a movement. Perhaps they can't do a 10 meter circle or maybe the barrel horse just can't turn the right barrel correctly. Um, so they can be really, really subtle signs. Um, it can be something overt, right? They were in a trailer accident. They flipped over backwards, they pulled back, uh, but that's pretty rare in my mind. Um, as I said, some horses can't put their head down to graze. Some horses can't pick their head up. They will get stuck in one position or another. Um, I think in some of the just stiffer, more arthritic horses, 
it's it's subtle. You know, they may just not turn their head to look at you properly. Maybe they um, have to twist their head to reach around to get at a fly. So when you really are thinking about, again, every tissue type um, and how they compensate, that they can present in nearly any way. You know, maybe it's a forelimb lameness that's not blockable to the distal limb. Maybe it's an inability to really lift through their thorax, to collect in that dressage horse. Um, they can't come up through their withers. Um, they can't engage from behind because they can't get up in their front end. I mean, it can be anything, really. It can yeah. be problems with the bit. Um, it can be, you know, a twist to their head in the bridle. Um, and sometimes when I start talking, people are like, oh, great, you know, there goes story again, everything's a neck. And that's not the, the point. But the, I do think it's really important to, to have the idea that we have to just think about the whole horse. I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about thinking the whole horse every time you look at them, whether it's a front limb lameness, a hind limb lameness, or a simple poor performance or weight loss, every body system, every body part has to be considered to do um, our best medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it seems like obviously when there's, when there's an issue, you know, riders are coming to their veterinarians and this needs to be considered um, as a, a legitimate possibility. But then also it seems like it reiterates the importance of the annual or biannual wellness exam too, and a really thorough one. Cause I feel like every every great veterinarian I ever talked to is like, Hey, we've got all kinds of great toys. You know, it's amazing. Technology's come so far, but none will ever top our eyes and our hands and how we can really take a detailed look at this horse. And I feel like no matter what issue it is, um, you know, you talk to Cliff Hannes and he's like, God, you got to pay attention to the back, you know, like <laughs> in these exams, you talk to Amy Polks and it's like, listen to their heart for a full minute on each side for the love of all things holy, you know, and it's like, and then the neck comes into play the same way, you know, it's a tip to tail type of thing. Um, and it really re reiterates how important that rider veterinarian relationship is and making sure that you do consider the whole horse because, you know, every, every joint is attached to a leg that's attached to a horse that, you know, it, it is very important. So, um, you know, so the symptomology we've kind of established, you know, if your horse sneezes, make sure you look at the neck, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Look in the neck y'all. Um, but in terms of approaching these conditions that we've kind of outlined broad spectrum, Dr. Ortved, can you walk us through interpreting the exam and the imaging, you know, take us through a day in the life of, of, of Dr. Kyla Ortved when you have a suspected case that involves the cervical spine, you know, in our prior part one, we talked about the exam, the imaging and how this is diagnosed, but how are you devising a plan of attack, looking at what is in front of you um, and what's in your tool chest in terms of treatments? Oh gosh. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, in terms of, I'll just like briefly go through how, uh, how I, how our team like sort of works through them. So if a horse does present for something and it, like Minnie said, it, honestly, there's so many different things that they do, um, abnormal behaviors, all lameness, they can, ataxia, they, they can have a like very wide variety of clinical signs. Um, if I'm suspicious of the neck, the two main things that we start with are 
a lameness evaluation and a, a neuro exam. So in the, in the lameness evaluation, um, I try to watch them move in, in on various surfaces in in various directions. So straight circles, see how they move, um, including at different gates. So trying to see if they're able to easily transition, trot, canter, canter, trot, walk, et cetera. Um, if we're suspicious that there is a neck, there is truly a neck problem at that point, I almost always, I, I, I hesitate to say always, but it probably is always, start with radiographs of the neck. Um, it's a fairly simple standard um, thing that we can do and then evaluate the radiographs. Um, if there's, if we're gonna go further, and I'm like now talking like a surgeon sports medicine person. So I will just, the, the our neurologists and, and medicine team will do the more medicine-y things like the, the cervical spinal taps and um, other neurologic testing. But from my perspective, um, if we have radiographs, if we have, a, if we have a suspicion that there's something going on that we need to see more detail, um, my next thing absolutely is, is a CT. I think, and I think that's been a huge advancement in our ability to look at necks because they are super complicated on x-rays. They are very difficult to deal with the superimposition and, and all the um, anatomy and then anatomical variations. So depending on that imaging um, and potentially if the horse is neurologic, obviously a myelogram is critically important. Once we have a diagnosis, the treatment is the treatment is obviously very dependent on the diagnosis. And there's such a wide variety of diagnoses that we see. Um, the most common things that I personally, from a sports medicine surgery side of things deal with is, um, like I said, osteoarthritis of the articular process joints. We see a lot of horses with stenosis of the intervertebral foramen. So where the spinal nerve is exiting the spinal column, there should be a nice wide opening. We see a lot of horses with bony growth, soft tissue compression of that nerve. And Mindy mentioned it. We see one of the sort of classic signs is those horses that get their head stuck down and they don't want to lift back up. Um, or the horse that has a unblockable lameness that you spend all day blocking. Um, so that's sort of the, those things together. Um, and then the classic wobbler we see quite commonly. So where they either have um, malformation or malarticulation, those things also can go together. So it's, there's, there's definitely a spectrum of all of this. Um, and then from there, the treatment plan would be very based on what we're, what the diagnosis is. And um, I would say those are the most common things that we deal with. Okay. You know, kind of digging into treatments. Um, what do you think, Dr. Story, kind of expounding on that? Uh, yeah, there's just, there's so, again, many levels to understand which structure so um, maybe we can break it down a little bit by what's what's common, right? So many people are comfortable with the idea that they develop arthritis of their um, articular process joints. Now, while I also think that sometimes that's overdiagnosed, mm -hmm. um, sure. we can still just accept that in some horses it is in fact real and we do have to treat them. 
And so if I have a horse with arthritis of an articular process joint, um, I start with the basic things, just like I would any other joint. And I sort of have different tiers of treatment that I think about. So in some horses that maybe are just showing uh, mild pain and more stiffness secondary to their OA, maybe I'll start with some mobilization techniques and some pain modification with things like acupuncture or some of the other modalities, lasers, um, PEMF, et cetera. Then uh, if those are unsuccessful or only minimally successful for a short period of time, then I'll go to sort of that layer two, which might be um, more the intraarticular therapies. And we could probably have an entire dialogue about which one do we choose? Yeah. Biologic, steroids, <laughs> which steroid, which biologic, yeah. etc. Um, and then I oftentimes incorporate more of that level one with it. So I'll do some... IA therapy with um, acupuncture and mobilization, et cetera. And then as you know, Jesse, I'm, I'm really passionate about, again, the whole horse idea and, and nutrition. And if it's a metabolic yeah. case, we have to not only consider the metabolic state from what do we put in the joint, biologic versus steroid, but also what do we need to do to that horse systemically to make them healthier, to decrease their their body inflammation. Cause I can put something in their joint all day long, but until I, I manage the whole body, it's going to be ineffective in my mind. So that's where the nutrition does come in as like that long-term follow-up um, and the rehab make them strong. So when you have any case with any problem, decrease pain, deal with the structure. If we have to deal with a structural problem, um, and improve mobility and improve strength and, and manage that through this, through the whole system. The, those are the steps that my brain go through when I'm looking at these horses. No, yeah. absolutely. I love the, um, the root cause approach, you know, cause there's band-aids that you can do all day long, but until you get to the root cause, um, it seems like things aren't going to be as effective. So I love that. That's, that's great. So I was talking to Dr. Matt Durham, um, about this too, yeah, and I was saying, gosh, I get to meet with Dr. Ortvet and Dr. Story about this. And we were talking about that. And he goes, oh yeah, gosh, we've got to talk about shockwave, chiropractic, ask Mindy about acupuncture, no two ways about it. <laughs> Facet injections. What about yeah. the injections near the nerve, the nerve route, Jesse? I mean, what about that? The perineural? And I'm like, goodness. <laughs> What's up, Matt? <laughs> Matt had some questions, y'all. <laughs> yep. And, and he's right, right? Um, yeah, it's not just about injecting the joints. We are thoughtful about trying to at least drizzle some anti-inflammatories close to the nerve. There's debate on if we can really be how close we can get to yeah. those roots, I think, but we can at least be in the region. Uh, so yeah, perineural, perineural injections. And then there's all kinds of surgical options that we can consider as well. Stabilization, arthroscopy, uh, you know, foraminectomy. Yeah. 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 So excellent. Okay. Well, I'll report, I'll report back. Like possibilities are endless. That's a better approach yeah. than like, Oh, it's so overwhelming. Yeah. I like to think the more positive side of, we can do so many things for these horses. Yeah. And I think Mindy has a good point in terms of the tears. Cause not every horse, 
not every horse presents the same way and some clinical signs are much milder than others. So like if you have a horse that is, seems painful in, a, in the neck, but is showing no neurologic deficit, you may be, you know, addressing that joint with anti-inflammatories, whether they're intraarticular or systemic, and then um, sort of adjunctive therapies. And Jesse, you mentioned shockwave. I actually, I, I like shockwave a lot for the neck. I mean, I have not done a study on it, but I feel anecdotally that horses with neck pain often will respond to it. Um, but then if you, Mindy brought it up as well, like if you have a horse that that is having difficulty with coordination and is overtly ataxic and the owner is committed to trying to improve that, you're not going to, you're not going to get very far by injecting the joints of the neck. Um, and maybe that's a case that, that, that cervical stabilization would be a consideration for the owner. And those are the horses that are better candidates for it than, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some horses we do cervical stabilization on for for pain that's uncontrollable, but um, I would say that's more rare. Um, so there are, yeah, there's lots of, there are so many different options and it's very dependent on the horse, the owner, the intended use, sort of the personality of the horse, I think plays a big role in it too. Yeah, absolutely. I can understand that. So, you know, as we take a step back, um, so much of equine rehabilitation is the restoration of normal movement, right? And then building strength. Um, so let's talk rehab for a minute when we go into this, because it is such a critical piece, you know, in the treatment of these cases. Um, Dr. Story, and I guess Dr. Ortved, you know, I want, I want to hear it from both of you. Talk to me about rehab protocols um, that you're often using and recommending for some of these issues related to the cervical spine. And it seems like restoring range of motion is a biggie with these patients and also, also optimizing core strength. Mm -hmm. Mindy, you go first. I just got to talk to Dr. Melissa King, by the way, in a, in another webinar about core strength. Yeah. So I'm, I feel like I'm so studied up on the multifidus. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> so we're going to talk multifidus, whether you like the it or not. Favorite okay? muscle in the horse. <laughs> um, well, you bring up Dr. King. I mean, she's she's an incredible resource for me. So I'll I'll be fully honest that if I have a complicated horse that I really need to have some uh, better tricks with trying to strengthen, I go straight to Dr. King for sure. Um, so I, I hope everybody listens to her webinar uh, because I'm sure there is a an, a, an amazing amount of um, knowledge in that for everybody to learn from. Uh, so yeah, mobilization is really, really important. Um, I do feel very strongly as a person who does chiropractic that I'm very conservative. And, and I think that's actually a really important message to have out there that while mobilization is important and um, chiropractic is oftentimes beneficial, I, I do think that we can do harm sometimes mm -hmm. and above all else do no harm. So when I have a horse that, gosh, it just doesn't feel quite right, the horse is reacting in a way that I think is um, showing me that there's more going on. For sure, if there's any neurologic uh, dysfunction, I am very, very conservative with any mobilization because um, I don't want to make 
them more unstable or worse in their mm -hmm. ataxia or anything like that. So uh, I will take radiographs. I would recommend a CT. You know, I do more mobilization from an active um, participation perspective from the horse's side, less on my side, right? So as long as the horse is actively engaged in the mobilization in a conscious state, then I think it's safer. I don't know these um, practitioners, but urban legend would say that some um, will anesthetize a horse to be more aggressive in their mobilization oh. techniques. And I mean, I'll, I will just put it out there. I don't think that's safe. I, I think that could be a huge problem. And so being thoughtful and conscientious about what we ask those tissues to do is super important. And if it doesn't feel right, you need more information. So if I have a horse that, gosh, it just doesn't feel right, maybe I will take radiographs. Maybe there's an old fracture in there that nobody knew about. Maybe the horse actually had cervical stabilization that nobody knew about, because that for sure can happen. And the more people that are doing the surgical stabilizations, I think I think those cases are going to become more common where the horse gets sold. Nobody knows, you know, owners don't always know the whole history on that horse. And so it would be really unfortunate if I'm trying to mobilize, mobilize a segment that's been stabilized surgically. So um, I, again, I just think it's really, really important to have the the safety side always at the forefront of our plan. And um, when we ask for mobilization, the horse has to engage first before I do too much. Sorry, that was a little bit of a rant, but no, <laughs> I think that's it's important. really important. <laughs> Indy, I think that's really important because it, and it's not necessarily something that you would, that you always think about. So being in tune with that is like, it's really, it's very cool to hear you say that. Yeah. hundred percent. I would agree. Um, yeah. talk to me about core strength and about these stabilizing muscles that come into play with, we talked a lot about that, Dr. King and I, you know, and it's such a common misconception with writers because we're humans and we hear core strength and we hear the importance of this musculature and we think, well, yeah, I've got to have smoke and abs. Right. Yeah. And it goes so much further than that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of people don't really realize the importance of having proper core fitness and what that actually does to stabilize, um, areas like the cervical spine and that those muscles actually do all, go all the way up to the neck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the strength of the horse and this, and it, especially the, the core strengths and those are all, so obviously, yes, the abdominal muscles are part of that, but the stabilizing muscles of the entire, um, the entire spine and it's, and it's critically important. Also all of our apaxials, the multifidus. Um, so these, these muscles that support and protect more potentially, um, fragile places like joints, discs, etc., and help sort of carry the whole horse are, super important. And, and there's exercises that are specifically intended to strengthen the core. I think it is there. We do just because of the size of a horse and because the horse will not always do what you tell it to do. Um, no. there, <laughs> there is, I mean, we have limitations in our physical therapy and you, if anyone's done human physical therapy, it can be very specific, very directed, very targeted. Um, and I sort of, found it. A, I was at a, I had to do PT a couple of years ago and there was a whole section of the physical therapy unit that was dedicated to neurologic 
physical therapy. So patients, humans with neurologic disease, neurologic deficits, um, building strength through building muscular strength um, and also improving their proprioception. And so in, I think sort of, and, and the field is definitely moving towards that, not just, you know, stick the horse in a stall and hand walk it, but having it do specific exercises, including things like warming up appropriately. So the horse is warm and loose, um, exercises that will strengthen the core. Um, and a lot of them are like the typical things we think about, including head down, head up, head to the side, carrot stretches, um, pelvic tucks, sternal raises, all of these things that will sort of help them move in that way. Um, in these neuro, in, especially in the neurologic horses um, and, in, and in many horses post-surgery, we'll have them also engage in things that hopefully will strengthen or improve their proprioception. So whether that's ground poles um, and you can, you can vary those considerably, you can bring them into a circle, you can um, vary the length between poles, just that they are becoming more aware of their limbs, where their limbs are, um, placing little um, anklets on them, little jingly anklets that will affect how they move their legs, um, hill work, things like that, that were not only sort of hopefully a little bit more interesting to the horse as, as it's rehabilitating, but also trying to work on these different aspects so that they're getting stronger, they're building muscular strength, but hopefully also building their proprioception and balance and, and um, coordination as well. Amazing. Anything to add to that, Dr. Story? Yeah, I, I, um, I think it's really important for the owners, the, the trainers to remember that just because they may have the bigger, more visible muscles that appear to be strong enough, if they don't have that multifidus doing its job, then, then at every segment, at every level, right? Because the multifidus spans multiple segments. And if that is not functioning, if it's not firing right, if it has atrophied at all, then every joint along that level is at risk. The, the way I describe it is, <clears throat> excuse me, the if the muscle isn't there to support it, then that joint has to take the hit, if you will, about every movement that the horse does. So when you so when we think about a little joint along the back or or the cervical joints, it's not intended to take the the strength, the impact, the bending. It is not supposed to take that all by itself. And if it does have to, then structures are going to fail, right? The joint capsules are going to start to fail. The cartilage is going to start to fail. The disc is going to start to become abnormal and dysfunctional and fail. And over time, obviously, that's when we run into so many problems. So just because the horse may look strong or just because the horse may be able to do its job for a 45-minute workout, you know, maybe it has cardiovascular strength, that has nothing to do with core strength, multifidus strength, and therefore joint support. And, and so really, really putting that in our minds as far as the, the core strength and the multifidus and all of those things as a means to protect the joint, I think is really helpful. And you can't see that. You just really can't see that from the outside. Um, I mean, there are some obvious signs and 
clues and and that's our job right Kyla to to help the owners understand that but you can look at a horse just standing out in the pasture and think oh he looks strong or you can go ride him for a day at the ranch and think oh he's amazing but that has nothing to do with core strength Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely you know it's like watching some very in shape men try and do yoga and um, <laughs> it is- there's gotta be YouTube videos on that. And I encourage everyone to try and look. <laughs> and, and that's actually oftentimes how I describe it to an owner is your horse needs yoga, right? It's, yeah. it's all of the things to give them that strength and mobility um, to perform well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, hundred percent. And Dr. Story, you brought up nutrition before. This is obviously the world that we live in all of the time. Um, but tell me a little bit, expound on that a little bit, because, you know, there's a lot of things going through my head as you're saying that. And in the cases that we consult on, um, what is it that you are recommending as a complementary therapy in your rehab cases in cases involving the cervical spine? Uh, I think one of the really big differences, maybe if when I'm thinking, thinking about a horse with axial skeletal disease or cervical spine in particular, um, and the rest of the horses, I want to protect the nervous system more aggressively, if you will, than maybe some other cases. And so from an antioxidative state, really protecting the nerves and nerve function, I, I look towards products of yours like longevity. That's my go-to favorite. So I think about CJ, right? I want to support the joints themselves. Um, the articular process joints are big joints. There's there's a lot of cartilage in there. There's a lot that we need to protect. So I think of products like CJ. Um, longevity is often something I add in. In some of the more hyperesthetic horses, I love steady. It's not just for head shakers. I'm I'm passionate that we need to get that word out. It's not just for head shakers, it's for any horse with a neurologic dysfunction. Um, and then there's so much great work with the microbiome and what that does just again as a whole yeah. source of inflammation. So balanced GI, whatever form the owners want to, you know, purchase it and get it in their horse, which bucket, which pack they want to call it. Uh, I just think that's so, so important. And I, I have theories that we're going to learn so much more about that as horses uh, transport across the country and across the world and their microbiome changes. What does that do to their systemic health and how long does it take them to adapt and do they ever adapt properly? Uh, So it's, Again, there's so many different ways I can look at it, but we have to have a decreased inflammation or inflammatory state of the body, uh, which probably comes through the microbiome. We have to support the nervous system. We have to support the joints. And that's why you guys are my go-to because you have a way for me to address every one of those for my clients. It all starts in the gut, right? So many things, gut brain (laughs) access. Uh, I would add to that, like armamentarium, um, uh, in a lot of the, I also, and this is, I sound like I'm plugging platinum, but I actually like forgot that we were like, (laughs) like talking to platinum. Another thing that I really like that I use in a lot of these cases is osteon, um, just in terms of bone support. Cause a lot of this is, I mean, CJ obviously, but joint and bone support, I think is is key. And I like osteon as a product. I really like, so that, and then the other, yeah, vitamin E, which Mindy mentioned, but 
I'm glad you added that in there. You know, I, I love longevity. I felt like that's the, I feel like longevity is a misunderstood formula a lot of the time because it does do so much, but in these cases, um, it does provide a lot of support, but osteon is a great one to bring up. And I know our, our mutual friend, Dr. Carter, Judy is a big fan of the CJ yeah. osteon combination, yeah. um, in a lot of these. So no, thank you for that. So, uh, I'm happy to learn what, what you actually use, uh, in your patients in practice. And I want to, I want to switch over to Dr. Ortved, um, for this one. And as we're sitting here talking about this, it's bringing up, you know, more and more questions in my mind. And I'm sure writers, trainers, writers, owners, as they're encountering their veterinarian and they're hearing, um, that there may be an issue with the, the cervical spine. Here's what we're dealing with. Um, and you're really digging in, uh, how, what, what is going through your head that you wish veterinarians or writers really knew, you know, and, and could keep an eye out for with these cases, you know, to help catch it early or prevent, you know, issues with the cervical spine or so on, you know, is there anything that you wish the veterinary community was taking into consideration more so, or that writers that we can do, um, to recognize these things and perhaps potentially prevent them? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good point. And I think that, like we mentioned at the beginning of this, it the neck is becoming something that people are much more in tune with. And we have, a as a community, an equine community, have a much better understanding of. I would say a couple of things um, from, from the beginning. I think it is not, to, I don't, and I don't want to get in, into a place where we're over-diagnosing or over-interpreting um, horses during pre-purchase exams. But I will say from that very beginning, before you acquire the horse, making sure that you have a physical exam um, that includes examination of the neck for some, some horses will have obvious signs of, um, and it's less common, but um, specific sites of atrophy in the neck or um, pain on palpation, range of motion, like we talked about, neurologic deficit. So, so making sure that we evaluate the horse appropriately. I, in my own world, if I am buy, if I was buying a horse, I would definitely have radiographs of the neck taken. And then you can take that information and do what you will with it. Um, and some of them are in a gray zone. It's hard to interpret, but some we've seen several horses, um, that have that, and they're often imported. Um, so they come over, um, that we have pre-purchased, the owner comes to the clinic because the horse is having pretty significant issues. Um, and they show the pre-purchase radiographs of the neck and they are very, very bad and the horse is young. So that's always like a big concern to me. So I think just making sure that you are doing your due, due diligence when you're acquiring a horse and then being in tune to the horse, how it is behaving how it's moving, how comfortable it is, its range of motion, subtle things like we see uh, Mindy had mentioned in terms of grazing, not, not being able to get down to graze. I see a lot of horses too, that only graze with one leg forward. And they'll, so it's only one leg out and then they move leg goes out again. And, and several of those horses will have neck pain and it's the only comfortable way they can, they can graze. So being in tune with things like that, so that you can get a diagnosis of if needed. And then I would say the third thing that, that definitely, I think most of the veterinary community knows is that neck disease is complex. 
diagnosis can be challenging. Um, and we thankfully have a lot of tools in the toolbox now, but it can be a little bit of a, a road to try to figure out exactly what's going on because of the complexity of, of the, the anatomy and um, how many things can be involved. Um, I think that would be, those would be the three main things that I would focus on. Love it. Dr. Story. Uh, just to add to what Kyla said, you know, um, you mentioned behavior. So if I could <clears throat> help um, people just really understand that those subtle behaviors can really be cluing us all in to what's going on and, and to not ignore them. Because if, if we ignore them for too long, then our chances of having a successful outcome at the end, I think, go down. So just being really honest with ourselves as owners, writers, trainers, veterinarians, wherever we fall in that place, that this horse is trying desperately to tell us something. And so we're just going to keep looking to, to sort it out. And so listening to the horse so many times, the owners will say like, gosh, that's been my gut feeling. Um but no one would listen to me. <clears throat> and so being the veterinarian who's listening, I think is really, really important um, because there's so much to hear from the owner and the horse if we just stop for a minute to listen. Um, and uh, also to Kyla's point, it is so complex and, and don't let that scare people really. Um, we do have so many tools, mm -hmm. but we just have to have a great communication with all parties involved because they're complicated. They're frustrating. Owners get scared. Uh, we're still in a little bit of a place where it's like, oh, my horse has cervical disease of whatever version. And, and that's scary. It's like navicular disease 25 years ago, you know, oh. the horse had navicular <laughs> Maybe disease. That's so good. It's <laughs> like, oh my gosh, we're done. Yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah. no, you're, we're, no, we're not. It's okay. Yeah. And I, I, that's the neck now, I think. Yeah. And so, yep. It's okay. We, we're yeah. just going to take it step by step like we do everything else. What structure, what level of disease are we in, dysfunction, pain, how bad, where are yeah. we at, what are your goals, how long's it been going on, and that's okay. And just one by one, we're going to knock off the check marks of what, do we, what are we going to do here. <clears throat> um, and so, yeah, open communication with everybody and and being okay that we're just going to sort it out. Do some horses not go well? Sure. Some horses don't go well. That's true. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but a lot of them do if we just are thoughtful in our process and open yeah. in that communication. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a good point because it's, it, you're right. It is like that, like, oh my God, but there's a lot of horses that get very successfully treated and go on with the hugely success, successful athletes. Like there's a lot of things that we can do now, thankfully. Yeah, you know, I'm from Colorado, right? So Peyton Manning is our is our cervical disease star. Right? Yeah, uh, he was he was out as a yeah. as a human athlete at the top of his game. He was out, yeah. and he rehabbed well, and he went to the proper treatments, and he had the right people on his team, and he won the Super Bowl. <clears throat> so yes, it is not a reason to think there's no hope or that the horse can't do its job. Yeah. It won't do its job if we don't address it though. Ignoring it and pretending it's not real, pretending that it's not <laughs> happening, that is not the approach. That is not going to make the horse successful. Mindy, that's like good life advice in general. 
across all things. <laughs> Maybe don't be an ostrich, folks. Don't be an ostrich. It just yeah. never works. <laughs> Takeaway of the day. No, yeah. I think a couple of things that you said are really important. And one is, you know, as humans, we I think need to realize more that, you know, when when symptoms speak it's our bodies trying to tell us something. They're giving us the gift of a red flag and we can deal with it before it goes from a minor issue to a major one. Now our horses can't talk to us, right? So it's our, it's our observational skills and having a good relationship with your veterinarian um, and calling them in, you know, before things get really bad to make sure that you're, you're paying attention you're looking and listening and feeling and, and observing those issues that they are trying to tell us, you know, that their body is trying to tell us. Um, and I also think you said something about Peyton Manning that made me think of this. He had the right people on his team. Right. And I think that these days, especially with, um, ACVS MR or the American college of veterinary sports medicine and rehabilitation really, uh, coming into its own over the last several years as, as really the newest college, um, that's out there. We have board certified specialists like yourselves that work so hand in hand with a horse's general practitioner, you know, and it's really nice because there is this cordial relationship between veterinarians and specialists. Um, so you can really provide this specialized expertise in these cases. Um, and I think that's really important because having a veterinary directed rehab program Mm -hmm. is also a big deal because there are so many, um, you know, correct me if this isn't the right term, but there are so many very, um, skilled layman rehabilitation clinics or, yeah. or practices out there. But when it comes to certain injuries and cases, you know, these being one of those, it is so important to have your veterinarian involved in that rehab protocol, because there are you know, some of these injuries that really do need to be rehabbed in a specific sequence and in a specific way. Um, so I think that's, that's so important to reiterate too, is making Absolutely. sure that the veterinarian is a key part of this puzzle, keeping them in the loop and keeping them as an active participant, um, is a big deal. And, you know, speaking of these specialists, two of which that are staring back at me right now, um, I think that there's so much that's come into the limelight on this, right? There's, there's research emerging, there's diagnostic best practices and treatments and proven rehab protocols. And Dr. Story, the equine spine initiative is really trying to gather the right people in the room, um, more and more, every time I meet with you guys, you know, there's, there's a <laughs> lot of right people in the room these days, which is great. Um, but you're really trying to become this active think tank, you know, action tank, if you will, on the cervical spine and trying to establish these best practices um, to give veterinarians a go-to resource. So there's not quite as much variation or not quite as much questions. So I know we addressed it in part one um, a little bit, but tell me a little bit about that. Let's talk equine spine initiative for a minute. So we can, so we can really address kind of what's, what's going on because the future is bright, right? Uh, it is. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited. <laughs> it's, um, I feel very fortunate to get to work with amazingly talented people from all over the world. Uh, so, so yeah, it's a group of sports medicine specialists, um, rehab specialists, pathologists, radiologists, surgeons, you know, medicine people. And it's a very special group of people who have come together with a common goal, uh, 
broadly to make a horse's life better. Um, and one of those areas that we're all struggling with, as we've talked about all day today, is the cervical spine. So how can we understand it better? Uh, it's been a little <clears throat> humbling to be in the room with those people and think, oh my goodness, you know, it's such a blessing to be here today. And we start talking and suddenly you're like, wow, uh, we still just don't have the answers. But we're we're really, really passionate that we're not going to stop until we find some answers. And it's just one little bit at a time. And so, yeah, we um, actively talk every month and, and we bring all of our own expertise to the table to help, A, educate each other and ourselves, and then um, be able to put that out to the greater veterinary community, owners, trainers, um, because it, it can be a little overwhelming. And so back to the idea of a team, there's lots of, there's lots of teams that we all work on. And so, you know, I have a team sort of with every horse and it's the farrier and it's the dentist and it's the massage therapist and it's my nutrition friends, um, the rider, the trainer, the owner. Uh, so that's one team that is critically important. But then there's this bigger team and this, this team is trying to understand cervical disease in a, in a, deeper way so that we can help educate veterinarians across the world, really. Um, and it's exciting and fun and new surgical techniques uh, are coming out of that group, which is very cool. And we talk about rehab <clears throat> uh, methods that may or may not be effective and how can we tweak that and how do we help each other understand what the horse is telling us I mean we met in Kentucky this year and it was so exciting and fun to watch everybody in their own space be amazing and you know I felt very selfish I was like cool I'm going to take away that idea and that idea um, but it's fun it's really fun and I hope that we can spread information um for years to come really and every day there's something new for a horse to teach me for a colleague to teach me for an owner to teach me and as long as we always have that in mind um we'll get there it may take a while but we'll get there that's awesome yep absolutely and i mean when you sit in the room with these people when you're a equine veterinary medicine geek as i would comfortably say all of us are um it's funny looking around the room and it's basically i would equate it to like LeBron, Kobe, MJ, and down the road is like sitting in this room. And it's so fascinating to hear what everybody brings to the table, you know, because they are specialists in so many different areas, um, kind of homed in on this one specific topic. So it's, it's a pretty cool thing. Um, driven by Dr. Story and a few of her close colleagues, Dr. Kevin Hausler and, and so on. So it's a, it's, it's a neat group and it's going to be fascinating to see what comes out of it over the next several years. Cause I would imagine this group is just getting started. Um, so for the two of you, any parting words, you know, we've covered a lot of ground, um, but I want to throw it back to the both of you. If there's anything that we, that we want to end with. I mean, I think we, I, Jess, you did a nice job summing it up too, but I think remember the neck, think about the neck, um, stay in tune with your horse. And, and if there's a concern, it's, like Mindy said, it's so much better to address it when the concern first starts, because there's a lot more that we can do earlier in the disease than later in the disease. Um, and our ability to 
diagnose things is so is so much better than it used to be. And with that also, we are much better able to treat things appropriately and get a horse back to where it wants to be and where the owner wants it to be. Um, so I guess that would be the the parting word that I, words uh, that I would leave with. Nailed it. I feel like people hate it when you ask that question where it's like, <laughs> oh God, oh God, spotlight. Uh, <laughs> how about you, Mindy? Uh, yeah, for sure. Everything that Kelly said, I mean, those are, those are critically important points. Um, so yeah, just reiterating that it isn't, it is, it can be scary, but don't let it be. It's okay. And as a veterinarian, there are some of us who um, focus on this every day. And, and so, you know, reach out, be, the, be a part of that team. Um, you know, my best example is I literally have never floated my horse's teeth in my life ever. Oh. I'm not a dentist. I, yeah. I have somebody come in and do their yeah. teeth because yeah. it's not me. And I don't need to be that person. I would never go out and do repro ultrasounds. That's not oh. what they do. <laughs> and so, so we are blessed to be in a profession where we can have specialists to lean on and embrace that, be okay with that. The owners so appreciate the team of team effort. Um, so as a, as a private practitioner, perhaps, um, don't let it be overwhelming. Just know that there are people out there who think about this every day. And we, when we're here to help and educate on every level, um, there are so many better ways we can diagnose, just like Kyla said, and so many better ways that we can treat now. And, um, so just be open to that and, you know, surgical techniques are developing every day. It's improving our outcomes. Yeah. That, that tier two, you know, more medicine sort of level and that tier one from a modality level, exercise level, et cetera. Um, and I guess my biggest parting word would be thank you to Platinum. Uh, <laughs> you have supported the Spine Initiative from its inception and we wouldn't be here without you uh, and days like today. Uh, truly, genuinely, you are making a difference in horses' lives every day, everywhere. And I am grateful for that. I would, I would reiterate that that's, it's an amazing job that you guys do and have always done and continue to do. So we're very, very grateful. Well, thank you. We are very humbled to be with the likes of, of you all and your colleagues and, and just to get a, a seat at the table or a seat in the room, you know, in groups like the Equine Spine Initiative is, um, is humbling, you know, and it's, it's a really neat thing to sit around and watch our friends and people who are dearly important to us, equine veterinarians, um, making a huge difference for the horse, which is the great unifier, right? That's why we're all here. Um, and, and what we're so passionate about. Um, so no, it's, it's completely our honor. And, you know, I think there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, you know, it's a glance inside the equine cervical spine, um, and the really incredible work that's happening in veterinary medicine to better, to better understand, diagnose, treat, rehab, um, these conditions and these injuries related to this area of the horse. And I know we as humans certainly can't function, you know, to our full potential when we experience pain or decreased range of motion in this area. And our horses are by no means different than us in a lot of ways. So doctors, Mindy Story and Kyla Ortved. Um, you two are amazing veterinarians who make such a big impact and not only with your research and your passion um, in this area, but in many, many others. 
Um, and let me tell you folks, these two women have their hands on horses daily. They're treating these issues, they're testing uh, techniques and iterating, and they're helping to really write the playbook on how we'll best handle these issues related to the cervical spine. And like I said, many other aspects of veterinary medicine, um, but ultimately it's for the benefit of the horse. Um, and I think that's so important that we always go back to that. Um, so thank you to you both for joining me, um, but also for your incredible work on behalf of the horse. So I really do appreciate it. And so does Platinum Performance. Thanks, Jesse. You That's bet. Easy. You bet. And, and to all of those uh, joining us, thank you for spending a bit of your day learning alongside me um, from our two guests today. And we hope you join us next time. So until then, I'm Jesse Bengoa with Platinum Performance and take care all. Thank you.